In this episode, I host part two of an ongoing dialogue between Rupert Spira, a teacher of the direct path method of Advaita and an internationally acclaimed ceramic artist, and Henry Shukman, Zen teacher and award-winning poet and writer. Rupert and Henry discuss the path of deep training in both art and spirituality, why traditional forms are repositories of generational understanding, and the meaning of true spiritual friendship. Rupert reflects on how art points to truth, and Henry discusses Zen koan training as a means to stabilize awakening. Rupert and Henry also reflect on what it takes to create effective art, and why it is vital for the apprentice to surpass the master. So without further ado, Rupert Spira and Henry Shukman. Rupert Spira and Henry Shukman, welcome back to the podcast. Hello, Steve and Henry. Lovely to, to be here again. Likewise, uh, very, very thrilled and uh, uh, just delighted to gather like this again. Thank you, Steve, so much. Yeah, speaking of delighted, I'm actually so delighted to be talking with you both again. Uh, the first recording was just so wonderful and so well received. And actually, it ended with a promise to exchange books, uh, you exchange books with each other. And I'm, I'm curious if that happened. I'm curious if, if it did happen. Have you read them yet? Uh, perhaps a uh, rather bold question. Have you read them yet? And then what did you think of them? Well, yes, we have exchanged books. And um, yeah, I can say that I've certainly, um, I've certainly read Henry's book and, and, um, and, and really absolutely loved it. Um, I can't recommend it highly enough. Uh, there's so many things I loved about it. It was one of those books that um, when, when, when I start reading a particularly good book, I always speed up to begin with because I'm so eager to find out what's on the next page that the narrative, the story dr draws me into it and I just feel pulled along by it. But then when I'm about three quarters of the way through the book, I realize it's going to end soon. So then I slow down in order to savor every page of it. And I found myself doing that um, with Henry's book. Um, not only is it beautifully written, uh, I thought the, um, and it's sort of, uh, Henry, I hope that it's, it's uh, um, right to characterize the, the, your book in this way. It's kind of split into two parts, your, your, your early life, your early struggles, which you, um, describe in a very um, evocative, powerful, honest, open, vulnerable way, um, in a way that I, I could so completely r relate to. Um, and then it evolves very naturally into your introduction into Zen. And, and, and then you take the reader on the, the kind of a process that you went through during your your early Zen years, and then gradually, slowly, as you went through all the, the koans and then began to, to share your understanding. And I find myself just completely involved and absorbed in the book. I wasn't reading it from the outside. I was participating in the in, in your journey with you when you went along. And I was very, I was very touched by it. I thought it was really very moving, beautiful book. Well, of course, it's very nice to hear that. Thank you. And um, um, I'm, I'm delighted. I really am. And uh, yeah, uh, my heart is glowing gently, <laughs> those words. 
Um, thank you so much. And I mean, all the more so really, because I've had such a fantastic uh, time diving basically into your, your world, you know, your, 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 your incredible capacity to convey uh, the way you experience. And so the, the, the three books of yours that I've read, um, which are, you know, much shorter than my tome, um, they're all, uh, of course, they're, they're, I guess we would call them teaching books. Um, but they, they're very, I mean, they, the, the, the one thing that struck me so much about them was just how beautifully and sort of organically they convey the reality that, you know, you've come to know and, and we all hope to come to know to differing degrees, you know, they convey it. In just, in just the most organic, natural way. And beauty is sort of part of their means of conveyance, so to speak. And I just, I just love that. And actually, when I was uh, sort of Googling around, I stumbled across an absolutely gorgeous uh, little video, which I, I think is not recent, I'm guessing, because if, if I'm right, I think it's your son who's who's sort of in the background here and they're helping you with the kiln and oh, yes, the pots yes. and things. Yes. And, and, you know, he's a, he's a young lad, maybe, I don't know, six or seven or, or so yes. at the time, I would guess. And I think he's now 30 from what I've read. Uh, 22, yes. Oh, 20, okay. Oh, so I'm off a bit. But, but anyway, it so it is... a while ago, yeah. Still a while ago. And the... What just really struck me was this really sort of seamless development from expressing uh what do we call it reality through your ceramics uh, which which are just breathtakingly beautiful actually i mean it really took my breath away at times and, and i've i've i mean this isn't the first time that i've googled around and seen your incredible work your ceramic work you know nor indeed your teaching but the the i hadn't quite put together how how they're really of a piece that you, you sort of, you just, you, you kind of, yes, seamlessly sort of evolved from conveying, expressing through clay to inscribing words in, in the most remarkable way onto clay, which actually for me really brought up memories of, um, of the ways that sometimes sutras are written out in large visible form in the world in Asia. Um, and, um, you know, you, you were putting these, I, I mean, I, I, I couldn't tell all the sentences clearly, but, you know, certain phrases were, were visible and discernible. I am, I saw a number of times, yes. you know, appearing yes. on some ceramic work. And then to to just, just words, you know, and, and words that you speak and words that are in these beautiful, small books that are, it's as if they are simply another way, you know, a little less 
form bound or less tangible yes but but really just conveying the same thing yes you know the same reality the same fact of who we are you're, so, you're, you're, sorry I, I think i'm more or less finished, you know, just that, well no just, I, i'm very i'm very touched by your observation henry um because it's so it's so completely spot on i think i possibly tell this story in the beginning of the um the I am, the little I am book, but I'll just say it again that, that um, so yes, as you say, I was making these very large bowls and the bowls were getting larger and finer and more open. And of course, there's a, there's a, there's a limit to how large and open a bowl you can make on a wheel. And I was, I was pushing the, the, the materials and the process to a limit. And in, indeed, they would often collapse as I pushed them a little bit too far. So then you learn just where to just to go just as far as the material and the process will allow you to go so i was making these very large open fine bowls and then as you say inscribing the poem and in fact it's the poem that is in the little black book that i sent you a meditation on i am so i was inscribing this poem with a needle on the on the bowls and they would take several days it was a very it's a very kind of zen process i would be writing all day every day with a needle on on these bowls or all over. And this idea um, came to me completely spontaneously um, in the middle of inscribing one of these bowls with a poem. And the idea was simply, I wish I could make bowls just out of words. I, I wish the I, I wish the clay would would I could take it to such an extreme that it that it it it, it lost its form. It, that, that, that the medium on which the, the the words were written became more and more transparent. It was already becoming more transparent, more open. But I wanted the I wanted the medium to to vanish. I wanted there to be just the words. If I could have if I could have written the words on in empty space, I would have done. But so I had this idea. It just came to me, and then I forgot it. But it's amazing how an idea like that works in you because. Two years later, that's what I was doing. Two years later, uh, the, the, I had written my first book. I'd had invitations to speak. The pottery invitations to exhibit gradually dwindled. Invitations to speak gradually increased. Two years later, I found that I was making bowls out of words, so to speak. I was making meditations just out of words, which later turned into the books that I sent you. So you're, you're right. It was a kind of seamless process. I never had the experience of going from one form to another form. It was just one form just refined and refined and refined. And then at some point it lost its materiality and it just became, I, I, I see it as making bowls out of words, making these guided meditations out of, out of words. And the same process that I had, um, undertaken in the pottery for 30 in my studio for 30 years refining 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 it just carries on with words and you you understand this being a being a, a very fine writer that the the power that words have the capacity that words have to convey understanding so this process of refining um carries on just just trying to find the the fewest possible words to say to, to 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 not to describe reality because reality can't be described but to evoke it in the reader's experience and that that's a that's an artist's work really an endless 
process of, of the refining one's one's processes and, and to become um, become more economical but also a more potent expression of of understanding yeah 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 beautiful it's just uh, uh just the last thing you said brought up a, a thought of um there's some teaching I've, I've i've stumbled across somewhere that the more subtle something becomes the more potent it becomes that the yes that, you know it gets more and more refined and sort of i guess distilled but more and more kind of you know barely there sort of evanescent and but instead of that meaning it's somehow weaker it's the opposite it's it's more more powerful yeah, yeah. and you know another another observation i wanted to throw in to see how this resonates is that i get the sense that um i mean who knows but somehow you couldn't have got to that without the ceramic training that there was something about the the discipline of the craft and um you know the process of making these objects of, of really surpassing beauty but in in a very disciplined way you know they emerged from not just your training but centuries of of training and so you're you know you're schooled in that and actually by the way it's very interesting somewhere i read something that mentioned song dynasty firing process that you've been trained in and you know the koans that i personally have been trained in the great collections there are a handful of great classic collections of koans although the koans themselves date from earlier mostly tang dynasty and some back in india in the time of the buddha but they were collected in the sung dynasty so these great uh, sort of i guess in a sense training documents or manuals or evokers of reality you know that yes. these koan collections are we're, we're actually going back to the sort of same source same, really yes you know, yes uh, early yes. china you know Yes. but the but the way that you um you're training in that art and you know to the point where you're making it your own and you know you're you're sort of fulfilling the tradition by doing it your way quite naturally yes that yes. that whatever it was that the multiple levels that you were trained and then you know coming forth in your in your own expression of that in ceramics somehow i feel it's sort of gone into how you do it with words absolutely, absolutely. As if it's yes. sort of still there so yes. you know had you not had that training the way you speak and the way you guide um with words spoken words um i mean it's so marvelous to sense that the ghost of your your tactile form-based articulation is still there so somehow yeah. shaping how you do it now absolutely right absolutely your, your your observation is is again spot on henry i felt in a way that i've it's like i've done two apprenticeships and my my, my first apprenticeship and my apprenticeship i don't just mean the time i spent studying with with michael cardi but the whole you know my whole 30 years as an artist was a was an apprenticeship um 
I felt that the whole um, apprenticeship that I did in the pottery re really gave me a kind of kind of blueprint. It kind of it 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 helped me to realize what the process is that one has to go through. And in a way, I've been through a, a similar process, a, a parallel process with my, my non-dual um, study and practice and understanding. They, they've, they've, the, the two, the, the, these two um, activities of my life, the, the, my, my life as an artist and, and, and my life as a, a truth lover, that they followed remarkably similar trajectories of um, training, with a teacher absorbing the, the, the teaching and then going um, on my own, making the understanding myself and then finding new forms, not, not, not rejecting the, the old forms, but, but it, it evolving them in a way that is consistent, not only with my own understanding, but with my own character and personality. And, and as a result, uh, the tradition evolves. It's still the same tradition, but it's a, it's a, it's an it's it's a new expression of the of the same tradition. So, um, and 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 this happened in both in both cases. So, so yes, you, you're right. Um, my my training in the in the pottery kind of helped me to understand what the the process that is involved in doing an a, an apprenticeship. In, in um, and I. As I say, my, my my love of truth followed a very similar path. Yes. That's, that's lovely to hear. Yeah, I can I can relate to that. <laughs> you might not be surprised to hear. Um, yeah. You know, there's yeah. a Zen saying yeah. that the the, the student must must they they I mean, it's just a phrase, but they say the student must surpass the teacher by fifty percent, <laughs> otherwise the tradition <laughs> dies. You know. <laughs> otherwise what? Otherwise, the tradition dies. Otherwise, yes. So the tradition is fulfilled when, not when it's aped or mimicked, but when it yes. becomes somebody's own, own yes. expression. You know, and they have to take it on. That they cannot just repeat what they've learned from their teacher. That yes. they have to completely make make it their own. But then to find new ways that are tailored to their generation. I remember um, Francis Rolls, the, the teacher that I had at the College House, the Study Society in London, he said to me, um, said to me once that the truth needs to be reformulated by every generation. And I think it's so true. So it, it's the same, you don't add anything to the tradition because, because the, the, the perennial understanding is the perennial understanding. What, 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 is, what is true of reality now was true of reality 3000 years ago. So reality hasn't evolved, truth hasn't evolved, but the ways that we speak about it have evolved and must evolve. And someone will, you know, be inspired by what you and I are doing, Henry, and will make it their own and will speak about it in their own way and find new new pathways, new methods, new practices that, that are appropriate for their generation that were perhaps not so appropriate for our generation. Uh, just as the practices that we are evolving uh, were not relevant to people a hundred years ago. And that's what, as you say, that's what keeps a tradition alive. 
so that yes, it's what, what is passed on is something that is living. It's a living tradition. It's not a series of precepts and practices and dogmas. And it's something that's, that's really alive. Yes, yes. But here's another thing is that it's so good to, you know, meet someone and, you know, one does from time to time who's, who's allowed themselves to go deeply into the training first. You know, it's, it's, uh, yes. it's tempting to, for people to, you know, they have a flash of, of, of uh, immersion in reality and find it's always been here and this is who they are. And they go, well, I'm, I'm ready to teach this, you know. But actually, I think we're probably both in, in sort of schools that say, well, no, no, not so fast. <laughs> There's yes. a lot of training that can happen that's actually very, very beneficial. In Zen, they talk about one of the metaphors they use is, is lathe work, that, um, you know, masters would sort of, back in the Tang Dynasty, would say they could sort of recognize the lathe work that another teacher had done on a student, as if the student is a, is a you know, is a post being worked on a lathe. That, yes. And that actually this is, I mean, it doesn't sound like in our generation, we might think, oh, no, that's, that's no good, you're being shaped. But, but actually it's, it is, it's, it's only an expression, but it talks about being, allowing, surrendering to a, to a tradition, surrendering to a training. Which, which somehow must be, I think, part of the process. And I, I mean, I get the sense that you've done that very deeply. Yes. Letting, yes. letting a, you know, a, a master sort of, I mean, really, yeah, surrendering to yes. how they have embodied it and letting yes. that enter your body. And, yes. and, it's, and it's through that that in time, you know, we're able to uh, express it our own way. Yeah. Um, yes, exactly. I, I remember a, a time in the um, pottery with Michael Cardew. He was 80 years old. I was 20 years old when, when I went to work with him and he was like a, a cantankerous old Zen master. And um, he never really um, described anything or explained anything. One was just expected. I lived with him and another student. And one was just expected to keep one's ears and eyes open and, and learn as you went along. Nothing was ever explained or... And I remember once after I'd been there for about six months, uh, Michael came into the into the into the studio at one end, and, and and I'd been making bowls all day at the other end. So I had these shelves covered in 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 these bowls, and I was beginning to get be quite pleased with myself. I thought I was really beginning to get somewhere. And I, my, he didn't often come into the studio, but he, he came in. And I thought, oh, good, I'm, Michael's going to see what I what I've been doing. And, and so he came up to the came came up to where I was working, and he stood for what seemed like an age in front of the shelves of balls, surveying them. And and I was expecting my first real accolade from him. And I I can still see his face as if it was yesterday. He turned to me with this withering expression on his face, and he just said, "Rupert, you haven't begun to take this shape into yourself," and left. And one was just supposed to suppose one was just expected to um, take the medicine and, um, and and carry on. I didn't know. I had no idea what it meant to take a shape into yourself, and and there was no explanation that accompanied it. No, you you were just expected to you know you you take the medicine and and you 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 carry on. And this was the way the, the this was the way the apprenticeship worked. It was a bit like a a Zen, a little bit like your um your your marvelous descriptions of going into your um your koan 
teacher and your 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 <laughs> I'm probably not relaying this accurately, but your your teacher asks you to to share your understanding about your about the koan and you you say you say two words and 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 she rings the bell and dismisses you. <laughs> Come back in a month's time. Well, you know what do you do with that? But but you you go away and you you dig deeply into yourself and you find the next layer of understanding in yourself. That's the way the the process worked and that that's the way it worked in the pottery. It's it's way it worked when I was during my my um, exploration and studying and practicing of non-duality it was it was the same right right and and often in the in that zen process with the koans you 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 you, you have no idea how to even begin looking for what might be yes the the deeper reality that the yes. teacher's waiting to see you express about the koan you, you don't know how to look for it even but if you're just patient and and sort of basically gradually somehow let yourself go more things will just come up by themselves yes. Yes. and 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 you know and they're not they're not always what they're waiting for but sometimes they are you know and and gradually gradually you're being sort of brought into a, a more consistent capacity to open to what the what the one reality that every koan in its own unique yeah. way is trying to help us see you know yes. But I'm, in terms of poetry, if I may, I, I, I can relate also to this because I, um, I think my path has been kind of messy. You know, it's, it's been a um, ragged thing and um, somehow it's, it seems to have more or less worked out. Okay, but, but there, was, there were phases and when I was, uh, you know, more sort of identifiably um, on the way and, and including in poetry and there was a there was a period of my life sort of in my late 20s i guess when i started actually deliberately training under a living poet it was a scottish poet called douglas dunn i'd been really uh, struck by partic in particular one of his books called elegies which was a, a really remarkable book a, a suite of poems about the death of his first wife and a hauntingly beautiful short book um as some call it a wreath of poems um beautifully beautifully done and with a variety of forms and you know a really um really remarkable book that won uh, it won the biggest poetry prize at the time which was the Whitbread, and uh was you know it's kind of I suppose that have brought him a much larger, larger audience and readership and so on. But um, while while studying under him, you know, I I I'd been writing poems since I was a teenager, but I had never, and and you know the 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 the, the what informal apprenticeship I'd had all along was just reading poets, you know, finding poets I loved and reading them, devouring them. And that was a form of, of uh, you know, learning how others have done it. But it, there's something about actually having a, a living flesh and blood teacher as well. And, and he, he said, well, you know, you, you, you've just got to, you've got to get meter and rhyme down, which I'd never done. I was, you know, 
you know, a, a free verse poet from the start. You know, that was, that was, that was how I thought it was done. And so for several years, actually, I wrote nothing but poems in meter and rhyme, occasionally just blank verse with meter, but, but no rhyme, you know, um, in iambic pentameters. And I literally wrote nothing but poems in, in strict form, different forms, you know, I, I tried to do, I did a whole thousands probably of sonnets and hundreds of, I, I don't know, you know, these formal structures like sestinas and villanelles and whatever. And not one of them really was any good, but I just kept doing them, hoping that I'd crack it and suddenly I'd have a perfect sonnet that was actually a really good poem. It just never happened, but I kept doing them regardless. And then what happened actually was one night I was, <laughs> I was having a pee in the middle of the night. I'd woken up and gone to the bathroom and having a pee and then and suddenly a sort of memory struck me and words came with it. And I, as soon as I finished, I, I, I went into the kitchen and just grabbed a gas bill and on the back of it, just wrote out this poem. And I felt like this poem came from the teenage Henry poet. It was like, I was immediately just back where I'd been when I was 15, 14, 16 years old, when I first really fell in love with poetry. But it was different because I just had a sort of, there was some kind of weight of something in, in the way I was, the phrases came that was, it was from the same place, but it was, it was, it had a weight to it that felt like the right kind of weight and momentum and, and sort of like a, a deeper, you know, and it, and that was the start of my adult poetry actually yeah. was having been through that rather dry time of getting really schooled in the old forms. It actually transformed how I wrote it more freely. Yes. Um, I, I totally relate to that. Henry, when I was training in the pottery, the, the, the forms were, were really given to us. You know, one just took one of Michael's Cardew's bowls and really tried to copy it. So there was, you know, there was no question of, you know, trying to express yourself or anything like that. And absolutely, no way. You get your head cut off if you try and express yourself. <laughs> um, I remember once, uh, uh, do, doing just that kind of uh, um, trying to impose my own idea of, 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 of what I thought a bowl should be on, on onto this form. And so I was making them and I, I was making them with very, very small feet. And on another occasion, I remember Michael coming into the pottery and looking at these bowls and again with this kind of withering expression on his face. I remember him saying to me, Rupert, these bowls aren't like, uh, these bowls are aren't like real people, they're like actors on a stage. It just, just com completely demolished this, this, this you know, that the, the ego was rising up in me, trying to express itself. He just saw it because he was, he'd been making pots for 60 years, so he could just read them. He just like, he could x-ray them. He could see exactly what had gone into them. So he just walked in, saw them and, and realized exactly wh where these bowls were coming from in me. And he just 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 cut me off 
uh, again with no explanation just 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 you know this very terse comment and, and then he'd leave and you'd have to pick up the pieces you'd have to find out go into yourself find out what he meant and make the necessary correction but uh, so uh, most of the time we were just taking a, a, a form and, and copying it, which, which is your version of writing hexameters and pentameters. It was, and it puts you, the way, only way I can describe it is that it puts your body and mind into a kind of impersonal, on an impersonal track. The track has been laid down by previous generations. It's been, and, and it's not just an arbitrary track. It, it is the distilled essence of generation after generation after generation. There's, there's, a, there's a hidden intelligence in the form, which we as a young writer or a young artist cannot possibly discern. And we're not supposed to discern it, we're just supposed to copy it. <laughs> You're just supposed to put your body and your mind in that track. And the track will take care of you. If you stay on that track, it will take care of your mind and your body, it will train you. So that then later on, when you've, when you've really um, surrendered yourself to the form, and you've trained your mind and your body, then when you start to be able to express yourself free, freely, you, your expression has depth to it. It's not just some superficial free verse. It, 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 it is free. It, it's, it, it may be, um, it, go, it, it may break the rules, but it, it, it has the, the depth that is contained in the rules that preceded it. Yes, and again, yes. that's how a tradition grows and evolves. It has the deep roots of the tradition, but at the same time, the form can can always be broken or not broken, but evolved. But but only when you've mastered the form in the first place. Yes, yes. I'm actually just thinking as you're speaking of it. Just came up towards the end of what you were saying of the koan training. If I just, if I may, just speak personally on that as well. That. There was some way in which, you know, I'd had um, kind of a unpredictable random breakthroughs, you know, earlier in life that that had shown me reality. And um, but I, I had no way of really well, they sometimes talk about stabilizing it or integrating it. And um, and that was what I had been desperately wanting since the first one happened when I was 19 years old was you know, I, this is, I see, this is, I know now, this is, this is the truth, but how do I live it? How do I embody it and integrate it? And how do how I, what do I do about it kind of thing? And it was really only when I, my particular path, you know, was when I found my way to koan training and had to sort of just set aside anything I thought I knew, anything I thought I discovered, I just had to plod along with this very repetitive process. And, and something in me was just ready to trust it. But I'd been quite a rebellious guy, a young man. And, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't altogether easy for me to, to get into that process. And when, when I was apparently just ready, I, I did. And, but the, through, by going through this, um, yes repetitive process with a teacher um especially with the first koan where you know you might be with the first koan for years many are actually 
and you don't know what on earth might happen that would allow the teacher to believe you are ready to go to a next one. Yeah, you just have no idea. But suddenly something will happen. And suddenly you discover that what you've been doing with this koan was not at all what you thought it had been. You know, there's been a, a hidden, yes, previously hidden side to it. You just had, had no inkling was there, and suddenly yeah. it shows itself. But then having to do that with hundreds more, you know, it it <laughs> it it was actually getting into a a deep ancient path of training that actually allowed more, really sort of deeper. Yeah. letting letting lettings go letting releases to happen to open things up much more than could ever have happened i think if i had just done it in some sense my own way yeah. you know yes i think these um these forms that that we inherit in different traditions like the, the koan the koans in the zen tradition um mantras in in, in the buddhist and vedantic traditions um um the, the the forms that that, that i um, inherited when i was training as a potter that they are that these forms are, are they're the repositories of generations of understanding so it could just be a a, a sound as it is in a mantra or a question as it is in a koan or a or a form as it is in 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 the in a bowl, but if you subject yourself to that form, you are you are you are opening yourself to the generations of understanding that have have um, impregnated that that form. In fact, the, it, the form is the distilled essence of those previous generations of understanding. And by submitting yourself to the form, you are. Um, opening yourself to receiving the understanding that has gone into them. Yes. And I think that's the, that's why these um, practices, the koan training, mantras, um, an, an artistic apprenticeship where you submit yourself to, to, to a, a master, you, 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 it's nothing to do with expressing your feelings or any on the contrary you're, you're, you're putting your feelings completely on one side you're giving yourself to something that is utterly impersonal and i think that's why these practices are, are, are so powerful and, and, and why they last generation after generation it, it's the way in a way we could say that that understanding is passed on encoded in these forms yeah. koans mantras artistic forms uh, and um, because the understanding itself as, as was I know all three of us understand this the understanding itself cannot be it cannot be directly formulated it has to be it has to be encoded in a form that is somehow acceptable either to the mind or to our senses either as a as, as words or forms physical forms so it's the, these um these forms become the, the the means that are available to us whereby this understanding can be transmitted from generation to generation yes that's that's very beautifully put wow that i remember a time with uh, one of my koan teachers where um early on in my training where i had i had uh 
you know, there's a there's a thing they ask for with koans where they want you to to show them rather than we we often will talk about them, but there's a critical part of the meeting with a teacher on a koan where you you have to present your understanding. They say they call it, which is I usually describing non- it in the book. Yes, right. It's usually non-verbal, and I remember that the first time one came to me with real real sort of force and I, I didn't know why I was doing what I was doing and and but it was exactly and I but I knew as I did it ah you know everything just fell into place and it was sort of very liberating beautiful experience actually just to to sort of do that with this witness you know and and he said you know yes yes yeah it was a, it was a very sort of happy moment in a way and and on, on different levels and one was just how how marvelous to discover that this reality of which I'd had taste before could be shared, you know, and shared in an entirely nonverbal way, but in such a way that there was no doubt that you and the teacher were living the same reality in yeah. that moment, absolutely without doubt, you know, and, and sort of talking a little bit about it afterwards, he said something like, Yes, you know, we, we, when we do these presentations, we fall into grooves of practice that have been worn by generations of practitioners. Exactly, exactly, yeah. What a privilege though, what, what a, what a great good fortune to, to, you know, somehow I, I feel particularly lucky because I was such a, I had various sort of reasons or whatever causes that had made me quite distrustful and quite rebellious and quite angry um, in ways I didn't really recognize, you know, as a young man. And so it was, it was hard for me to get to the point where it was relatively easy for me to get to a point where I could recognize that I badly wanted some training um, and was going to various different monasteries and, and sitting long retreats and so on. But it was actually rather hard for me to get to the point where I could actually trust a particular yeah. teacher, you know, any, any particular teacher, because whatever, I had lots of bristly kind of uh, resistances to that. But, yeah. but finally, you know, I did. And I feel it was very, very fortunate. It was just sort of the right person in the right place at the right time. And my allowing myself just to step in a little doorway, a little crack appeared and I did step through and I might very easily not have done. Yes. You know, and yes. I feel it's very, it's great good fortune. And, and um, you know, I, I don't, also, I mean, one thing that I'm, I'm wondering about, and I, I, I'd like to see what you think about this is, you know, we're in this age now where, and it seems to be accelerating this direction where, you know, a single teacher can sort of can can transmit or convey the teaching to very large numbers of people you know especially through the internet um but what about the it's, it's on my mind because I, i'm i'm sort of a just recognizing a conundrum that i'm facing what about the the you know the immeasurable value of the kind of one-on-one training that we've yeah. both had you know which is which, you know, is, 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 is to have that one-to-one, yeah. you know, interaction with the teachers. It's, yeah. it's a very different thing from when we're, yeah. you know, speaking to thousands. How, how do you, I mean... It's a very, it's a very interesting 
question, Henry. It's something that I think about quite a lot at the moment because um, I'm, I'm um, with a little team that I have, I'm trying to make um, the non-dual understanding available to as many people as want to know about it um, as inexpensively as possible. And given that the non-dual understanding is basically about peace and, and happiness and love, that, that's an awful lot of people. <laughs> Not that many people are interested in enlightenment, but if you just reframe it, peace and, and happiness and love, then basically everybody's interested. So that's one thing I would like to do is to make, make this understanding widely available, as, uh, available to as many people as want to know about it as inexpensively as possible. And, and the, the internet is, is a, of course, a, a wonderful medium for that. At the same time, I also, um, like you say, uh, the, the, the value of one-on-one of, um, -on -one relationship, the value of friendship, direct friendship is, is so valuable that I'm also wanting to go more in that direction as well. I'm wanting to go in both directions. So having had a couple of years um, where live retreats haven't been possible, and now that I'm getting back to them, I'm thinking more about how to, how to go, um, and this is obviously which is with a much smaller group of people, about um, possibly even finding a place. I, I was very, very interested in your description. One day I might even come and visit you. Um, your, your description of how you found your, 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 um, uh, your, your retreat center, your, 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 how you found it. And, and I, I would like to go more in that direction where, where there's a, a physical home for the teaching where people can come and really immerse themselves very deeply in the teaching and also where this one-on-one -on -one friendship is, is, is available. Yes, yes, yes. So, yeah. uh, yes, I, I'm, I don't think it has to be either or. I think it's, I'd like to do both. Yes, yes, that's, that's beautiful. I, I can totally relate to that. Um, uh, go on. I was just going to say, in, in, in my case, it's been a little, maybe almost the other way around, that for the first 10, 9 or 10 years of my teaching life, it's been mostly in person. So relatively small numbers are, we can't really have more than about 40, 45 yes. people at the most on a retreat. We can pack more people in for a single session, but not for a retreat. And um, so, and it's been with a lot of one-on-one -on -one time. And in the last well, three to four years, and then accelerating the last couple of years because of uh, COVID, of course, it's, you know, it's been much larger numbers um, online. And um, somehow having, I really like the way you, you frame it, actually, that uh, I feel exactly the same, that having the capacity to make, make the, the, the basic sort of discovery and the, 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 sort of faith really in spreading the trust that there is an underlying truth that's right here now that heals all, you know, and well, it's already healed. There's nothing to heal actually in that truth and making that as widely available as possible is, 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 is increasingly important to me. 
and um, and at the same time, how to balance that with having maybe a much smaller number that are yes. really wanting to pursue this particular path, you know. And I, I mean, I, I just smile a little bit at the word friendship. I mean, I agree with you entirely. It is a kind of friendship, but but it's a particular kind, you know. That those withering looks of Michael Cardew, you know, <laughs> sort of. Yes. It's a deep friendship. I mean, I can. My, yes. my, I, I still have a master actually in Japan, you know, who I continue to train under when I can, and now and then online. We, well, we meet quite often online, but not always for for training sessions. Also, because I'm part of the leadership now of the of this Zen organization, so we have things to discuss. But but when I can, I do a you know, so-called dokusan, you know, one-on-one koan based meeting with him and you know to this day he'll he'll have seen some new new dimension in a koan and he'll he'll just wait till i see it too and it might be many meetings that he's saying yeah "Yeah, that's very very good henry very good but not yet (laughs) yeah Yeah. you know and and i'll go back to it and just wait you know yeah can i ask you something about koans henry um You describe in your book, I don't remember the details, but but there are these books with, with hundreds of koans. Is that is that correct? That there are hundreds of koans have been passed on over the generations. And, and you yes. may start is is that Yes, is that there are well there are there are three really sort of preeminent collections. Um one has forty-eight and the other two each have a hundred. Mm-hmm. And they're sort of the core of our training in a sense okay so my question is this are new koans evolving <laughs> do you know um i, I the do, answer do you, is that... for instance with, with your students do you sometimes do, do you so i'm sorry i interrupted you henry it's just a, a kind of a, an addition to my question for instance you're, you're with people that you're working with now are you giving them koans fr- from from this from these three collections or do you sometimes find by inspiration a, a, a new koan that comes with it that you share with others so, so. I feel that we're all facing fresh koans every day in our lives um, but actually you know frankly there are so many to be led through as it is that I don't want to add to the pile in any formal way um, because anybody who really wants to do this training, and there's probably not that many for whom it's definitely the right thing to do. You know, mm. it's a multi-year process. Mm. And I've just, I'm just reluctant to, to make it any longer. Um, <laughs> and, and I also, I do feel that, you know, the more we, we, we sit with the classical ones, the ancestral koans, they're sometimes called, um, the more we'll realize that we're facing a koan in our daily life anyway. Yes. And, but somehow the, the training in the ancestral koans helps us with the ones that come up in daily life. Yes. So, um, you know, there is a, yeah, Robert Aitken, who was a teacher in, in our lineage, actually, he, he wrote a, a book of new koans, um, which I just now can't remember the title of. And I mean, I read it with, with some interest, and, but I, I haven't really felt inspired to use them, basically for the, for the reason I just said, that yeah. it's a long training already. Yeah. 
you know, and, and I would, you know, at times I would, I questioned why, why did it need to be so long? Why so many? But in my own case, I feel that the way I was experiencing and understanding really did continue to shift all the way through and still does. So I believe that they, they have a, for those for whom it's right, it is a, it is, it is the right way to go. Yeah. 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 And we'll revisit them. You know, I'm, I've, you know, I've been through them more or less three times actually with different teachers now. And, and, um, and often, you know, when I, if I'm going to talk to one of them, I'll sit with it again, of course. And, and it'll, it'll, new things will, will, will appear, you know, new insights, yeah. new, so new resonances. And, yeah. Does one in your tradition, does one ever share the, the, the process that you go through with a, a particular koan in more detail? I noticed that, that, that that's something I, I was, I was hoping would happen in your book. I wanted you to, to take a koan and actually to take us on the journey that you went with it over a period of, of months or, or years. But I noticed you, you didn't. And I wondered if it was a bit like um, in the same way that, for instance, one never says one's mantra out loud. Uh, it, it, it's an internal thing and it doesn't, it, it shouldn't be, it shouldn't be spoken out loud. I wonder if there was some, uh, and there's a lot of wisdom and understanding con contained in that. And I wonder if there was a similar um, understanding with, with the koans that you never actually rationalize, let alone write about the process that you go through as you're working with the koan. Yes, that was a choice. I mean, that there would be a risk, possibly, of somebody feeling that they needed to go through the same yes. process, yes. you know, yes. yes, rather than letting it do the work it needs to do on each of yes. us, just yes. the way we need it, you know. So that would be one risk. Another is like, um, well, part of their magic is, is really that they, they they're impregnable to the rational mind. Yes, yes. And yeah. so there's a risk. But as a poet, yeah. Henry, um, sorry to interrupt, as a yes. poet, you, you're, you're, you're a master of writing about things that are not accessible to the rational mind. So uh, thank you. Um, <laughs> yes. But, but I, un I understand, I, I understand um, why something that came across very very clearly in your book that I like very much is that from an outsider's point of view you you, you think or oh, you're given a, a koan and you work on it but something that came across that I like very much about your book is that you gave the sense that the koan works on you you don't work on it yes. it, it has the understand you don't have the understand it has the understanding it's it's the it's the distilled essence of of generations of understanding all you have to do is submit yourself to it. It will do the work on you. You don't do any work on it. That yes. came across very nicely in, in your book, I thought. Yes, I think, you know, I think probably what you're describing, actually, I've done, I mean, with the terms of sort of explicating the process with the koan more, 
or articulating it more clearly. I guess I probably have done that in talks yes. and, and might do that. I mean, because especially talks that um, in the old days were given to relatively smaller numbers of people who you know, were gathered together in one room and, 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 and all working on cars or at least some number of them working on cars. And um, I think probably in that context, I have done that. And they're sort of buried somewhere in the, in the archives of Mountain Cloud Zen Center. Um, yes. yes, I think so. In, in, in the interest of giving people sort of a way in to at least start sitting with it in what feels like a fruitful way. Um, but I, I know I didn't in the book because I really didn't know, you know, who, who, who was going to be reading the book. Yes, yes. And the, yeah, there's some, there is a certain sort of, I don't know, what, what's the word, shyness or um, uh, some, some, something in, in the tradition itself that wants to be a little guarded about the inner recesses of the teachings. Yes, you know? yes. No, I, I, it, you say it, 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 it's guarding something from interference with the rational mind. Right, right, right. I suppose on another level, of course, there's something that can't be guarded and doesn't need guard. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. As well. That's a, yeah. Mm. We've talked, this is so fascinating, by the way, really amazing. Uh, we, we've talked, you've talked about uh, the process of uh, entering into the grooves of the past. Of, of the condensed wisdom in the forms of the of the bowls or the structures of the koans and so on, using that as a means of entering in and being educated by those condensed, um, I want to say zip files. <laughs> yes, that's, <laughs> that's a, a nice bit, way of putting it. Bit, yes. It's a bit of a coarse way uh, yeah. compared to how you've been describing it too, but unfortunately that's, I think that's my level. <laughs> Of vocabulary, but that's sort of a zip file of that. And you know, we I'm wondering what emerges from that. Uh, you know, in the epilogue of the first episode we recorded, um, I pointed to a juxtaposition between Henry's account of ecstatic inspiration, this spontaneous rush of poetry that you actually told us about today and Rupert's account of the daily discipline of, of life in the workshop. And in fact, Rupert, you've mentioned before in our solo interview, uh, seeing only the imperfections of the work when it comes out of the kiln and being drawn back or driven back perhaps to the studio to create again and again. I, I also noted that those aren't the only dimensions of your artistic processes. I think that's become clear here, um, but they serve as an interesting juxtaposition so I wonder if we might consider what makes effective art from the process point of view. Uh, what role, if any, do you think the disposition of the artist plays? Does this sort of evocative art that we discussed in our first dialogue and have been discussing again here, we could say spiritually impactful art for want of a better word, or truth evoking art and that points to that, or um, duality stopping or duality interrupting art to just to draw on some of the themes that were explored in the last dialogue. Does that require a, um, a spiritually informed artist 
does that does the artist even perhaps need to be in some sort of special state of contact with some transcendent truth uh, when working for that to uh, for, the, for the art that comes out of that work uh, working to carry that potential to evoke and point so i'm i'm curious what's required if we move on from taking in of the past of the wisdom of the past what's required of the artist from the process point of view to make the kind of art we've been discussing here and also in our previous dialogue may I, may i jump in yes yes um one thing i would just need to state is that um i mean when i when i am producing a poem you know there, there may be an initial gust of inspiration you know that gets it started but i will i mean i, I don't think i've published a poem that didn't have years of some level of tinkering revision even major revision after that so in other words the that that first um laying down of the poem is only actually it's really only the beginning of a process and i'll revisit it again and again you know sometimes for several days at a time and sometimes not for months sometimes not for years i have a, you know i have files of poems in what feel like different stages of of readiness and i'll just you know pull something out and see how it reads now ah not quite right there's a glitch there there's something that's not quite right here you know and and it may it, it's a long it's actually for me it is a long slow process to get them feeling like each time i revisit it this has found its form this has found its readiness and um so i i just want to note that you know um right off the top and um on the on the other point steve about the art that can convey this kind of truth i my path has been again it's been messier i mean i don't feel that um all my poetry and all my fiction and all my non-fiction has clearly had that intention actually it's i would i would have expressed it more as a matter of trying to do what i saw my poetic forebears trying to do which was perhaps you know an anatomy of suffering a close analysis of loss you know so, so many great poems one way or another seem to be around loss so much actually this beautiful japanese poetry and and tang dynasty poetry is about various kinds of pain and uh, you often associated with loss friend friends that are absent people who have died and partings that must happen and you know the 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 it seems to me that there's something there's some sort of echo of longing for um the realm where there is no loss but that the the poem might stand at a place where there still is loss and 
And even though there's a resonance, uh, like a sort of echo of that lost land that may one day be recovered, the poem is, at least I'm speaking for myself and the, and the sort of private canon that, you know, I keep evolving of poets that I love, um, they seem to be cognizant of that, but not wholly there. You know, I, I'm a great lover of Thomas Hardy's poetry, for example. And, you know, it's not, I don't think it is uh, directly seeking to convey non-dual experience. It's, it's more really deeply understanding suffering, something like that. And Wordsworth, he's, he's just such a remarkable poet, Wordsworth. He, I, I get ever more enamored of him, actually, over the, over the years and decades and more deeply admiring. But he, he speaks to loss a great deal as well as to, you know, the, the immediate joy and peace and love that can, that can show themselves right here and now in spite of consciousness of loss. And so I, I don't know, it's, 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 um, I can see that, again, my, my path is, is messier. I hope it's a fruitful kind of mess, <laughs> but it's 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 not straightforwardly, and you know the poet. I mean, what got me started on a, on a sort of you know sort of so-called spiritual path initially, again as a teenager, was poetry because I was really I was so inspired by Tang Dynasty poets who wondered and believed in some kind of greater whole, greater reality that you could sense it. Um, and in some of their work, you know, they were directly articulating that, but in much they, they weren't, they were, and yet it was there sort of in the background of their world, of their worldview. And then when, and then, you know, as I started to read more widely, you know, I realized, yes, there are, there are people, there are writers in whom you sense that even though they don't articulate it. So I started to realize some writers knew of it, even though they weren't directly expressing it. And those were the ones I loved, but they weren't, um, they weren't exactly, they were more sort of seeking, it seemed to me to sort of convey the whole human drama, but yes. that sort of backdrop of a, of a greater whole was somehow present. Yeah. I don't know. How did that sound to you? I, I agree with you, yeah. Henry. I think it's. Um, I think very few artists, if any, consciously set out to convey the non-dual understanding. Um, Cezanne was um, unusually explicit in, in, in this respect. He he actually said the purpose of his his uh, of his painting was to was to take them various elements of nature colors in, in his in his case and arrange them in such a way as to draw attention to nature's reality that that underlies the appearance of colors but Cezanne was very unusual he's the only art actually one of the very few artists that I've heard uh, really described that explicitly um, but I, I to, for instance what, what you said about loss and, and about suffering about how much art how much literature is to do with suffering and loss. I, I agree with you. And the, the 
purpose, or at least the avert purpose of these works of art is not to draw attention to the non-dual reality, it's to, to observe and, and describe very in great detail with great sensitivity and clarity that the, the, the suffering or the loss but i think in a way these artists they are in a way they're in the service of truth whether they know it or not it's not important it's, it's in most cases it's best if they don't know it because it, it's only impossible it's only possible to observe loss from the perspective of that which remains behind if all we experienced was loss then loss would not be experienced as loss we, we would just be we, we would be with the we would be one with the experience of loss no we're only we're only able to describe loss what has been lost because we describe it from the perspective of what remains behind we're only able to describe, if one was 100% one with one's suffering, one would not be suffering. Yeah. It's only when we observe suffering from a place in us that is free of suffering that we can label it suffering. Yeah. 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 We were yes. totally 100% suffering, we would experience it as happiness yeah. because yeah. we would be one with it. Exactly. So in, 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 describing loss these poems that that, that you, you you say to describe loss and suffering and and for instance i, I feel the same about uh, rembrandt's portraits they they are uh, raw visceral images of of humanity and very often humanity's suffering the the the, the difficulty that but when you view, uh, when you read such poems or view such paintings, you initially, you're taken to the loss, you're taken to the feeling of loss, to the feeling of suffering that's expressed on the face, the feeling of loss that's expressed in the poem. But as you stay with these poems or, or these, these paintings, without necessarily realizing it, you are gradually taken to the point of view from which they were observed. That, if, for instance, is why Rembrandt's portraits, to, to, to me, um, are in, in a class of their own. Yeah. Because yeah. They're, they're, yes, initially you, you, you empathize with the, with the people, the individuals. The, the, uh, um, but in time, if you stay with these portraits, you begin to feel in yourself the place from which he observed these people. Yes. Yes. And yes, the reason he was able to to paint human beings with such humanity, with such sensitivity, is because of the place in himself from which he looked. Yeah. And that is where his paintings ultimately they take us. They take us first of all to the suffering person. But then if you stay with it, if you contemplate, if you stand in front of one of these paintings for half an hour, you, you're taken back to the place in yourself from which he viewed and that's the place of of openness the place of compassion the place of love the place of, of clarity now did rembrandt know that he was doing that no no because he was it that would have involved that would have meant that he had to kind of separate himself out from his pro, from his person no he couldn't do that he had to be wholly immersed 
in the process. He was being used in this case. I think he was being used by truth. Yes. By by love. Yes. And yes. he 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 and he 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 trained, so he had the skill. And in a way, his understanding came through him without him necessarily being aware of what he was doing. I yeah. mean, surely he had no idea of the impact that he would have on humanity. Beethoven, for instance, another example. These people, they were not party to the process of which they were involved. And I don't think they could be. I don't think they should be. In a way, they had to surrender themselves to, 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 to the process with all the suffering that that involved for them in order to be this clear channel, which now in retrospect, we can see was a completely impersonal endeavor for, uh, that they were involved in, an endeavor that, 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 um, that was undertaken on behalf of truth and was for humanity, for, for, for subsequent generations and, and centuries. Yes, that's so beautifully put. I, I, I totally agree. There's a, and actually I'm a, I, I love Rembrandt. He's, uh, he's, he's, he's a, the very pinnacle for me. There's a, and there's self portraits, portraits of an old man. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Where, yeah. And it just, maybe a, a thought is um, one that's come up is like um, somehow the more thoroughly the artist can know suffering express suffering the 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 more clearly the backdrop of understanding of it or the, of of the presence that can hold it is conveyed it's like the i'm thinking of you know how how those 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 yeah those self portraits and uh, of rembrandt's where he's you know this person is just so lost in a in a world of suffering and and pain and distress and so on. it's all there and and yet exactly as you say you sense be somehow because they they know suffering so deeply all the more do they convey the reality which is capable of sort of holding it yes which which is which is broad enough and fundamental enough to actually hold suffering you know and and that's i think that's i mean the artists that i i love most i i i i've they seem to know of that which can hold all our suffering you know the one thing that can uh embrace or be what was that affectionately indifferent <laughs> i think that was your phrase that can that can that can know all our suffering the the, yes. the one thing that you know even our most our most acute and chronic and most painful yes. losses can always be held by yeah disinterested by, affection yeah, yeah disinterested affection perfect yes yes that the the the, the disinterested affection of the one of the whole of the truth of reality can hold all suffering and yes. it's the one thing that can and and so somehow the more deeply these artists we love are able to express and convey and know suffering 
the more the more thoroughly in its train comes the sense of that which can hold it maybe yes. and yes. hence rembrandt hence beethoven yes. and the various other poets that um have a capacity to sort of to make beauty from suffering yeah to yeah Yes, I wanted to just comment on something else, Steve, that you said about whether about an artist, whether they uh, carrying on really from this, from what you've said, Henry, but how, how, how conscious an artist needs to be of, of, of what they are doing, whether an artist needs, for instance, to, to, to be on a spiritual path or, or, or to have a sense of the ultimate reality, reality. I, I think, I think the answer is no, they they don't, but but it for, for many people, for many artists, when they go into their studio, they they they, they enter a um, they enter a sphere a sphere of activity really that puts them in touch with something in themselves that they are not normally in touch with in in their everyday life, and this would account for very well-known phenomena that, that, that many artists can, can lead very dysfunctional, chaotic lives. And yet when they go into their studio, it's as if they, they access a different, uh, um, different place in themselves from, from which they are able to make incredible work that, 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 that is powerful and, and, and that it, it, it's really the, the activity itself that the, the activity that takes place in the studio puts you into a puts you on a track and in a way it kind of impersonalizes you it it puts you in the service of something that is so much greater than what than, than you as a as an individual so in the rest of your life outside your studio you're just behaving like a regular individual and and uh, like a regular the, the, the sense of separation, the sense of duality. But when you enter your studio, you enter a, a field of experience. And, and this is why for many people, uh, um, artistic work is kind of addictive. Right. Because you, you the, the, when you are when you are working, whether you're a musician, a writer, an, an artist, but when you are working, you, you are, in a way, you're taken out of yourself, you, you, you're you're working in, in the service of something that is so much more than just your own personal feelings. Um, so I think, I think many people don't come into the studio with a sense of reality, the, the non-dual understanding. On, on the contrary, they go into their studio in order to access that. And then their work becomes an expression of that. Yeah, that's just right on, right on. And I think there are those of us who, who may somehow embark on the artistic life and then realize that we actually, we, we also want to live the wisdom or the understanding that we can access while at work and not that's in the rest true. of our lives. Yes. And some yes. of us decide, well, actually this matters, this life yes. matters. And yes. Yes. I'm going to do that too, if I can. Yes, that's very uh, true. Yeah. yeah.
That's wonderfully put. Beautiful, yeah. Beautiful. And what a, what a difference there can be between, I mean, for example, Thomas Hardy, you know, is often, you know, he was, he was often characterized as so melancholic, so down, so, you know, dispiriting. And he was a very cheerful guy. It's odd, <laughs> you know, his work, especially probably his novels, you know, can seem pretty, pretty, uh, yes, yes. pretty kind of depressing. But actually, he was a very cheerful man. However, in his poetry, which also is quite dark, but it's always more uplifting than his prose. I, I th really think he was a greater poet, actually, than a novelist. And I, th I think that's starting to be recognized more and more. Um, you know, he, he started out as a poet, as a young man, and then got into novel writing. Um, well, actually, he was also uh, trained as a church architect, but be began writing novels. And they, they did increasingly well. And he turned to it full time. And then at the age of 60, he, he, um, he forswore prose entirely, uh, except for letters, and only worked on poetry. And in the last 28 years of his life, wrote eight marvelous volumes of poems, picking up even poems that he'd written as a, as a young man and revising them and incorporating them into his new collections. And... Um, he he was. I'm actually I'm, now I'm wondering why did I suddenly bring him in, vis-a-vis <laughs> uh, uh, -vis where we'd got to in our conversation. But there's something about his um, the yes the, dis the the disparity that, that there can be between the person and the work. Yeah, you know that. And I think maybe in his later life for him they they came together more actually uh, when he was fulfilling his early promise and potential really as a poet i think it meant more to him huh. anyway wonderful yeah what a what a remarkable discussion i must i must say i'm i'm just i'm so delighted to listen to you both uh, dialogue like this i really must petition you to make this a triptych <laughs> and especially with such a nice word as triptych how can you refuse <laughs> yeah so marvelous you know there are so many themes that uh we could still cover but one in particular that i think is is the natural extension of what we've said here is or what's been said here is what about the master's view We've talked about this process of apprenticeship, apprenticeship to a master, apprenticeship to the forms, uh, submitting oneself even to the process of artistic creation uh, itself and surrendering to that. What about from the master's point of view, looking back or with an apprentice, let's say. I know Rupert, you've had apprentices in your pottery studio and both of you are now in your capacities it seems to me uh, performing something of that role for your students in uh, what a better word your spiritual teaching or uh, truth sharing um, capacities you have students uh, perhaps you don't think of them that way but nonetheless maybe archetypally there's some 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 resonance there so i'm curious how we might describe and discuss how to um, 
Yes, how one goes about accomplishing the process of apprenticeship that was previously explored from the apprentice's point of view, but now from the master's point of view. Archetypally speaking, I use the word master in that sense. I think that would be so interesting. How do we, and how have you ported all this understanding, this rich understanding and experience from your artistic trajectories into the work you're doing now? What's the specific application and implication of the themes we've discussed in the work you're doing now? I think that would make such a fascinating uh, third uh, installment in what, what we could call now a sort of triptych of uh, dialogues. What do you think? Well, you're making it impossible for us to say no, Steve. <laughs> Mission accomplished then. <laughs> these, these conversations are very enjoyable. We always um, explore in a way that I would never have imagined at the beginning of the conversation. You, you are a, um, a masterful interviewer, Steve. I think I said this at the end of the last interview. I think, um, I think Henry, you said at the beginning of this conversation that, that something, words to the effect that 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 the, the form, the, the, the whatever one's form is, it becomes subtler and subtler and subtler as one matures fewer and fewer words more and more simple and, and each word has has more and more power therefore there's less less need for for volumes so but but steve in that vein you are an extremely good interviewer don't think that you're just sitting there in the background of the conversation doing nothing you know just a couple of very carefully considered and articulated questions is enough to keep Henry and I going for an hour. And, and that's, that's, that's not nothing that, 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 that that's a, a skill in itself. So, um, your, 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 your largely silent presence in these conversations interspersed with these very carefully considered and crafted questions, um, a beautiful facilitator to this conversation. So um, thank you. Really thank you. That's very gracious of you to say. Thank you very much. And, yeah, I'd, I'd like to chime in with that as well, Steve. There's a, there's a subtle potency to your presence without which uh, we could not have had this conversation. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And also, you know, it's a, it's a, I feel a, I mean, I feel a great joy to be sharing like this because, you know, both of you, um, you know, what, what, you, what you bring up um, asks me to look deeper than I might customarily do and, yes. and share from, uh, you know, areas that I might not normally share from. And yes. I find it very... Um, very beautiful process and I'm very touched actually. And yeah. I feel there's a, there's a friendship here, which is very meaningful. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I'm very happy about it. I, I also sort of have a, when you, when you bring up a possible next topic, you know, I, 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 I my heart warms at the, at the feeling that I'm very ready to embrace that somehow 
Rupert's a little bit of an elder brother to me. You know, if there's, if there's a real master here, it's probably not quite me. I'm coming, maybe coming into something like that. And I've certainly been asked to by, by my master, you know, in Japan. But I feel I'm still in the, uh, the you know, the early stages of, of stepping into it more, more amply and uh, in a way that Rupert has more manifestly already done. And so it's very, it's very beautiful for me to be learning uh, in unexpected ways through these dialogues. And tri tri what's the word for a triple way? I don't know if there is one, uh, a trilogue or something. No, I don't think that exists. Uh, there ought tri to be a word. A, a tri uh, yes. Uh, um, yeah, <laughs> a three-way. <laughs> that's, um, there's so much I could say. I'm touched by what you say Henry, um, perhaps I'll just say this as, as a little possible prelude to another conversation around this subject, that um, I have, and, and I'm not, I don't mean this in a, in a kind of falsely humble way, I, I mean it really, literally, I have absolutely no sense of being a teacher, let alone a master. To me, a, a a teacher is simply a very good student. And I don't, although I, of course, I, I understand that from a, from a second person perspective, what, what I'm doing, what you're doing, Henry, is, is traditionally called teaching and therefore the label teacher applies to us. But from the first person perspective, it, it, it doesn't feel like that. It, to me, it feels like friendship. And as, as I said, I, I'm not I'm not, um, I don't mean to be kind of falsely humble, nor do I mean to, to um, ignore the role one plays speaking about these, these matters. That, that's something that I think would be worth speaking of. But I, I really consider what I do more like spiritual friendship. It, it's, a, it's a unique kind of friendship, but it's one in which there's, there's no hierarchy, uh, mutual love and respect. So um, anyway, let's not go too far down that path, but that, that would be a, an, an interesting conversation. Yes, yes. And just, just to, to note that I, 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 I resonate entirely with that. It, it seems like it it's, can never be anything but studentship, really. You yes. Know, what, what, because, you know, what we're serving is, is what, what, what else could we be but students yeah. of it, really? Yet the role Yet the role. And that's, I think, where we must leave it, uh, yes. because I uh, want to keep some powder dry for that yes. discussion. Okay. So, yes. you know, I think the tension, the tension of the cliffhanger and the wanting to say more is uh, that's good. That's that's our potential energy for the next for, for our next installment. Yeah. Well, thank you both. Rupert Spira and Henry Shukman, thank you very much. Many thanks thank to both. Thank you, Henry. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.